Welcome to the Delish Guest List Podcast, a deep dive into the lives and work of Hong Kong's crazy food and beverage industry leaders, hosted by The Beat Asia Magazine. This episode, we spoke with Lorenzo Antonori, beverage manager of Four Seasons Hong Kong, as he recounts the story of his entrance into F&B as a former law student turned alcohol aficionado in Rome and London, his love affair with Asian mixology, honing his art in Seoul, and mastering his skill at Argo Bar in Hong Kong. Enjoy! Hello, listeners in Hong Kong, Asia and beyond. We are sitting down today with Lorenzo Antonori of Argo Bar in the Four Seasons Hotel, Hong Kong. Lorenzo has been a family member of Asia's Four Seasons Hotel since 2017, first manning the acclaimed Charles H. Bar in Seoul, Korea, until 2019 when he set his sights on Hong Kong as beverage manager for the Harborside Hotel in Central. In his first two years, he took charge of Caprice Bar's cocktail program, reaching number 10 in Asia's 50 best bars in 2021. In July 2021, he opened Argo, a bar that pays homage to worldwide spirits making whilst also innovating on the game, debuting third place on Asia's 50 best in April 2022. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. Thank you for having me. We're in this beautiful, decadent Argo bar, and I just wonder what brought you to the continent, the region, five years ago, six years ago, to Korea, to join the Four Seasons family. What's the story behind that? Well, you know, I, um, I always loved traveling. Uh, since I was uh, um, a younger age, even when I was at university, I, I took chance of any free time that I had to travel and discover new places and new cultures. And um, I was in London at the time before Korea. And I think I was just at the end of my professional path in London, like at the end of a chapter. Uh, I always looked at Asia with uh, lots of interest because uh, I believe uh, it's a great crossroads of, uh, of people with different backgrounds. It was a, it's a culture that I, especially a landscape that I didn't know at the time. Um, so it was, a, it was a part of the world that I was very curious about especially looking at F&B and how F&B um, was somehow uh, raising. It was something exciting. So when the opportunity came about, um, I just took it and, um, and I kind of never looked back because I, I really enjoyed my time in Korea. It was a huge learning curve for me, uh, not necessarily just in terms of you know, managing or uh, in terms of uh, craft of cocktails. It's really about how to uh, measuring yourself uh, within a new culture, uh, with a new language. Uh, so for me, that was uh, uh, very exciting and, and scary. But um, I think it was a step that uh, it really uh, forged me as the professional I am today. Mm. What happened you know, in your career, in your motivation to... I know a lot of people don't understand or don't know that you began as a lawyer or you wanted to commit yourself to a life of law. When did mixology, when did cocktails, when did alcohol come into your life and bring you to where we're sitting today? Um, so um, that's a good question because actually my mom, she's asking me this question every day. You know, why? <laughs> now she's much more relaxed, I would say. But uh, I studied law for three years, so I have a short degree. Um, and um, at the time I was very excited because I, I kind of um, follow my sense of responsibility and, uh, and thought that law and being a lawyer would have kind of ensure me a very safe uh, future. Uh, but at the same time, I, you know, I quickly realized that 
uh, in life we need to do what we like. Uh, and I think law probably wasn't my path. Lots of uh, interesting subjects, but probably uh, I'm more of a, a person that enjoys being under the spotlight. And I've always been uh, a creative since a young age and uh, uh, taking acting classes back in Rome. Um, so I always loved being surrounded by people. And, um, and I think, you know, during a, a break, a uni break, I started working part time in a bar, in a cocktail bar in Rome. I wasn't really making cocktails. I was making espresso, uh, coffee. In fact, I was not allowed to make cocktails because the first time the bar manager left me alone, uh, I made a bunch of drinks for, for some guests and they were all uh, terrible. Uh, so uh, I was not allowed. But, you know, that environment really, um, uh, I had a certain fascination. And uh, I loved the energy I love the element of storytelling behind each cocktails and, of course, you know, the, uh, the connection with the guest. So I think all those elements kind of made me realize that probably working in hospitality was uh, more suitable for me. And, um, you know, I, in life sometimes you need to make some big, uh, big decisions uh, that not necessarily on, uh, on a short term uh, make any sense. Uh, but, you know, I decided just to pursue this career in F&B. And, uh, and um, again, I think it was the right decision for me. What was it about mixology specifically, you know, creating cocktails, creating these experiences that interested you to, first of all, have this career beginning in Rome, entering in London, going to Seoul and then Hong Kong? Was there something about this physical experience that you're creating that meant something to you? I think at the very beginning, uh, I was, uh, you know, what really uh, interested me was, uh, you know, the craft behind each cocktail, you know, each recipe and uh, the technique that are used, uh, uh, the attention to details. Uh, so I was very fascinated by that because I always thought that cocktails uh, were really just, uh, you know, you just combine together, you close your eyes you, you know, you pour a bunch of things in a shaker and then uh, that's it. But instead, there, is, there, are, there are recipes, there are measurements. So I was very interested in, in the scientific approach, let's say. But then I think what really uh, got me was um, when I was working in Rome, I remember there was this old barman, uh, Italian barman. He was probably 70 years old and he used to come to my bar all the time after lunchtime and he used to be a, an old bartender uh, that worked in a very famous hotel in Naples and he started to tell me about this uh, um, you know when he was younger back in the days when he was working in, in this beautiful hotel glamorous hotel and making cocktails and for very famous and important people and he was telling me how he would come up with, with cocktails or uh, compete in cocktail, uh, cocktail competitions and um, drop me uh, drop knowledge about histories uh, and uh, about cocktails and so I think this man basically uh, really um, you know gave me the the bug you know and uh, with all those stories uh, it really fascinated me and I think that's when I realized that you know bartending is not just about uh, you know mixing drinks but it's about uh, uh, creating stories. Uh, for our guests, entertain them, create a connection. So all those elements, of course, it, it, it's what, I guess, made me enthusiastic and, and, and passionate about the, the profession. When you left London, as you said earlier, and you wanted to join the Four Seasons group uh, 
in sort of East Asia, Southeast Asia, was it that sense of innovation, creation, community, engagement that brought you to Seoul and Hong Kong? What was it about the relationship that you could build with Four Seasons that's been important in 2017 and still important now? You know, before, as a matter of fact, uh, believe it or not, before I moved to Korea, I never stepped a foot in a Four Seasons hotel. <laughs> So, you know, it was something very unknown. I mean, I always work in hotel bars all my career, but I never uh, got the chance to, to be in a Four Seasons. And uh, I think I knew about Four Seasons, of course. Uh, so when the opportunity came, uh, it was what really got me was the opportunity to work with uh, such an uh, important brand in hospitality worldwide uh, and at the same time moving to Korea. And in all honesty, Korea, I kind of knew where it was on the map, but I had to look back, you know, just to make sure to understand where it was. Because I remember that uh, my, my association to Korea was uh, the World Cup uh, of 2000-something, uh, I think 2002, and Italy got kicked out by, uh, by South Korea. So that was my only memory. You wanted revenge. I wanted a little revenge. I wanted to go there and take over. No, reality is that I, I didn't really know much about it. I, moved, I went to Japan a few times for holiday, but I never really uh, been to Korea. I never really heard much about what was going on in Korea in terms of bars and, uh, and F&B. So that sort of, um, because I was, looking to, uh, I was looking for a massive change and really uh, a new chapter, I like this sort of uh, idea of stepping into the dark and uh, kind of uh, stepping out of my comfort zone. And then when Four Seasons told me about the project, uh, I, that's when I really made my decision because the bar, Charles H, uh, is, uh, it, it was pretty much, Four Seasons so was very new. It was just a year old when I joined. Wow. And, uh, you know, honestly... It was it's still one of the most beautiful hotels I ever worked and I ever been. It was probably the very first real luxury city hotel that Seoul had with a very exciting F&B F department. And the bar, Charles H, was this beautiful speakeasy bar designed by Avroco, which is a, a, a New York-based uh, designing firm. And is a bar tributed to uh, Charles H. Baker, who was a very, for a bartender, Charles H. Baker is, um, I don't know, if you, if you are a chef, you name some of those iconic uh, cook writer or uh, famous journalists that mm, kind mm, of mm, really mm. changed the way people perceived uh, cooking uh, back in the days. And Charles H. Baker was one of them, was such an important figure in the bartending history because was uh, in the 1920s, between 1920s and 1950s was this, Bon Vivant journalists that traveled around the world uh, collecting cocktail recipes from Asia and South America. He eventually went to Seoul as well. Uh, but he wrote two very important cocktail books, uh, which are called The Gentleman's Companion. So if you're a bartender, you know about Charles H. Baker. And uh, funnily enough, uh, I purchased, before actually knowing, knowing that I was moving to Korea, I purchased an uh, original copy of wow. the South American Gentleman's Companion from 1951, signed by Charles H. Baker in person. Coincidence. And, coincidence. And I paid a thousand pounds for it. 
So just to show you my commitment to the cause. <laughs> Did you show that in the interview? Or? I sold it. I sold it for 5K. No, I did. Wow. I didn't. I didn't. I still, still with me. Still here in Hong Kong, actually. Really? Wow. I, I have it here. But I, I definitely use that as a, a little bit of a, a tool to persuade uh, uh, the interviewer, the GM at the time. Um, you know, I think all those elements, it's kind of a um, coincidence. But at the same time, I think the project was extremely cool. Uh, in a very unknown land for me. And uh, so I kind of, uh, those were the reason why I, I, I moved there. Oh, wow. What dragged you, inspired you, you know? Why did you take that flight from Seoul to Hong Kong in 2019 to join Hong Kong's four season team and pitch yourself with Caprice? So uh, I think after two years in Alpha, I was a little bit, um, I was ready for a new task let's call it that way, for a new challenge. And, uh, you know, like the uh, Four season uh, kind of proposed me to move to Hong Kong. There was, uh, an, uh, in the pipeline, there was the, a new bar as well that they kind of whispered in my ear, we're going to open a new bar and you can kind of help creating the concept and, uh, and the whole program. Hong Kong, I, I, you know, I've been a few times. Uh, I always love the energy, uh, the melting pot of cultures, and the very exciting F&B. So for me, it was a kind of a no-brainer uh, choice as well. For season Hong Kong, uh, under one roof, so many talents, so many Michelin stars. Uh, for F&B lovers like me, it's kind of, uh, kind of going to the mecca, right, of F&B. So you have Caprice, Lung King Hin, uh, Chef Guillaume in Caprice, uh, uh, I mean, his, cu his cuisine is, is fantastic and having three Michelin stars in, in, you know, on his belt it's, and working, being able to work with him as well was a, uh, a privilege, right? And then looking in, the, the very first uh, Chinese restaurant to be awarded with three Michelin stars, again, it's kind of, um, you know, you don't have this opportunity often, right? A blessing. A blessing, yeah. Uh, and I, I love Chinese food, so uh, sometimes I sneak in the kitchen and, you know, I steal dim sum here and there. But, you know, all these elements, you know, kind of made it easier for me to, uh, to, to move here. And Caprice was um, the first project that we worked together, uh, with, uh, that I worked at least here uh, when I first moved. And, uh, and it was um, very challenging, but also very, very, very fun. Mm, mm, mm. Tracing back, obviously, two years into the future with Argo, July 2021. What inspirations did you take from Seoul? Did you take from London? Did you take from uh, Rome as well to creating Argo? A sort of personal passion project, but also you becoming heavily invested in creating one of the top Asian bars this year. Which, by the way, uh, we, we just had a great news two weeks ago that uh, I was in Barcelona mm -hmm. for the World's 50 Best. And, you know, I have to say sh big shout to the team because we rank number 28 in the world. Saw, yes. And um, so I, I just like to emphasize this because the team has worked so hard. And I think, you know, most of the recognition, I'm here taking this very cool podcast, but I think, you know, I share the glory 50-50. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's say actually 70 them and I take 30%. I just do the interviews. Uh, but basically, you know, Argo, um, you know, we, what I took from my, my journey, I think it's not necessarily related to the, uh, the concept. I, did, I think the concept Argo is a, a reflection of the time that we are living and is a reflection of how the industry is changing because we celebrate innovation. Uh, we look with the different eyes on 
spirits making, but also we, we look on how the world we're living is changing the way spirits are made. Uh, food and drinks, they work closely. And I think whenever we see changes in the landscape of food, this is uh, as an effect, effect as well how the world of drinks. So Argo is really like that. You know, we look at technology, we look at sustainability, we look at terroir, we look at storytelling, and how all those elements are shaping a, 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 and shaping a new way of of drinking and making spirits. So I think Argo was very much so what happened these days, what's happening around us. Of course, you know. Uh, for me, what I took was from London, uh, I've learned the basics, uh, especially of hospitality. You know, it doesn't matter in which venue you are. It doesn't matter which concept you are uh, running. It's really about people. And, uh, you know, we are in, uh, in, uh, in the hospitality industry, so we provide that sort of service. And that sort of hospitality needs to be friendly, needs to be warming, needs to be engaging um, and I think that's for me the London part you know Korea was uh, understanding that you know I'm in, a, in another country very different from uh, where I'm from so I have to be respectful I need to understand uh, the landscape where I am and uh, you know sometimes uh, uh, you need to pick your fight uh, because uh, otherwise you go mad and uh, but it's about really listening and understanding uh, that uh, the people that are that are working with you uh, and also the guests, uh, because again, Asia is very different from Europe, and uh, for me it was very important to instead of having people changing for me, it was very important for me to mold myself into this new uh, scene. So that's was what I kind of took from my experience in Seoul. Um, and then Argo, as I said before, was a pretty much like a result of, uh, of this uh, uh, understanding and trying to question a little bit what's happening around us these days in the world of food and beverage. Absolutely. Close the podcast. Just popping in to say if you've enjoyed this episode so far, check out TheBeat.Asia for more exciting content just like this. The Beat Asia is the fastest growing regional publication for local news, happenings, culture, and more. So be sure to check us out at thebeat.asia. All right. Now, what was I saying? Tell me about what cocktails at Argo mean. What, are, what themes do you portray and present in the tipples that you make? And what, where does innovation come in in terms of the ingredients that uh, you source and the recipes that you uh, created? Yeah, so as I said before, you know, I think Argo, yeah, we, we celebrate innovation in spirits making. We look with lots of curiosity to that world and we celebrate those stories. But as I said, you know, the world of spirits is is connected to what we're living on a daily, daily basis, right? And uh, so, you know, our first cocktail menu, uh, it was that. It was showcasing those spirits and the story that we were telling were uh, around those six ingredients that are part of our daily based life uh, they are in danger for different reasons or mm. they are a uh, very dramatic menu they are in danger for different reasons what are the six but, ingredients can uh, you tell us we have rice honey vanilla cacao uh, and apples and um, so the idea was like how we can celebrate them and how we can tell certain stories and I think for me innovation is not necessarily related to oh it's innovative because we're using a, a crazy machine that makes cocktail or makes you know, 
people flying away or uh, innovation is really about, um, I think, understanding the landscape we're living and uh, uh, telling certain stories. For example, innovation is also understanding the origin of certain things that we, we consume every day. It means like what kind of um, uh, practices are we adopting these days in order to have a more uh, sustainable uh, operation. Uh, Argo, we use EcoSpirits. It's a technology that allows us to reduce massively carbon footprint when it comes to spirits and as well the um, transportation of, uh, of spirits themselves. So they come in those totes. Uh, we are able to refill the bottles. We try to be as plastic-free as possible as well. And we try to work with people that are conscious and they have uh, ethical uh, values uh, that I think are important. We work with farms in Hong Kong. We have a collaboration with a honey farm in New Long. So one of the drinks uh, that we have on the menu, the Barcliff and Love, is kind of tailored around the work that these guys do with the farm, with the honey farm. So it's about urban farming. We use, oh. yeah, we use the honey, we use the bee pollen, uh, we use uh, part of the flora that actually surrounds the farm it's, uh, itself. We work with a friend of mine, he has a cacao farm in Malaysia. He works with uh, local tribes, uh, supporting them. Uh, so when, I, when we start the project, because we have a cacao as one of our ingredients, we purchased a number of cocoa pods and a number of cacao um, for one of the drinks, for actually the cacao section. So I visited the farm myself. Unfortunately, we were supposed to do much more interchanging of uh, experiences with them, but COVID uh, didn't allow us. But uh, we have the single origin Negroni, which uses uh, Ulugali cacao from Malaysia, from the tribe. And it's a way for me to, of course, I'm aware that, you know, those cacao, they take a plane and they come here. So it's not necessarily the most sustainable way to travel. But at the same time, for me, it's also about uh, supporting whoever adopts good practices at the origin. Mm -hmm. uh, and then innovation as well, you know, in spirits making, uh, technology is playing such an important role. And for us, the normal way of categorizing spirits doesn't really fit anymore uh, with the current landscape because you have producers that uses technology or produce spirits that are not categorizable as a vodka, whiskey, rum. You have botanical spirits or hybrid spirits. Uh, example, the guys from Empirical Spirits in Copenhagen, they are ex-chefs from the Nomad in Copenhagen, uh, the very famous restaurant. They set up this distillery and they pretty much make free-form spirits, wow. focusing on flavors rather than a genre. Um, but we came across molecular whiskies, uh, AI gin, AI made spirits. So spirits are kind of created through an algorithm. Do you, want to, do you want to use AI gin in the uh, why not the cocktail program? Yeah, we have it. We have it here. It's, oh, really? uh, yeah, we have uh, created a book uh, which is pretty much our spirits list. Wow. It's called the Field Guide to the World's Innovative Spirits. Another very dramatic uh, name. <laughs> but we categorize. Uh, we put together these. Uh, 60 bottles, and we categorize them based not on their genre, but based on their story, production method, origin. And we have an AI gin made in Bristol. Wow. A molecular whiskey, a hybrid spirit. So there's a lot of stories that can be told uh, these days. Wow. So obviously you mentioned um, two weeks ago in Barcelona for the, the world's 50 best, winning 28th, your third place 
on Argo in April. Where does Argo exist on the map for mixology in Asia for now and the future? Where do you want to bring your team to next? I think the next goal would be to welcome as many international guests as possible. Good answer. I, I Good answer. think, you know, rather than, you know, those achievements and those accolades are great. But I think as well that uh, they are not sustainable if we are not able to showcase what we do uh, to a broader audience. So I think for me, the biggest goal would be being able to welcome uh, guests here as early as possible so they can actually see and experience what we do in Argo. And, you know, the program will always evolve uh, in a creative way, in a, in a progressive way, always kind of questioning things under another with a different uh, eye and looking at things from a different angle. So I think that's what, you know, Argo future is about. Okay. Um, I think we're good for the questions now, but we have our buzz fire round, so we're going to take five seconds just to... Beautiful. Let's, let's relax a little bit. Get your, uh, get your uh, Short of tequila. shoulders uh, ready. We're going to be asking you some quick questions with less than a few seconds to think of an answer. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. What is your favorite garnish? Olives. Olives. I thought it would be... Uh, gummy bears. Gummy bears. Why not? I know. That's, that's my favorite food. Every, everyone knows you for the gummy bears in Hong Kong. <laughs> if you had to drink one cocktail for the rest of your life, what would it be? Negroni. Why? Because uh, I lose my passport otherwise if I choose another drink. Indeed. Work is cancelled for your Friday night. What bars are you hitting up? I would probably drink a beer uh, with friends on the stairs in, um, in uh, Taiping Shang Street, which is my favorite street in Hong Kong. So outdoor, friends, beers, great. Of course, of course. What is one liquor, spirits, alcohol genre you cannot drink again after a bad experience? You know, funny, uh, since I was, till I was 23, I couldn't drink gin because wow. I got uh, my first experience with gin. was very traumatic. I was 16. There was this bottle of Bombay Sapphire in a club on a table, like a random bottle I don't know who it belonged to. And I just took it and I scaled it. And, uh, <laughs> and then I, it had some traumatic effect on me. So till I was 23 and I was already working in London, I couldn't smell gin. I couldn't drink gin. It was uh, really goosebumps. And now I'm changed and, uh, and it's God. great. Beautiful life. <laughs> what is your, and then going on to uh, hangovers, what is the best cure to get over your hangover? Um, I mean, drink again. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's the best. But I think if I have to be mindful, probably, you know, lots of water. Uh, Barocca is one of my, you know, or any sort of vitamin C. Um, and uh, a Netflix marathon. Good, good. What is the worst drink you make that people love? It doesn't need to be on the bar menu here. If it's just a vodka cranberry and you hate that, but people love that then. I mean, like, realistically, uh, there must be a lot of drinks that I, that I secretly hate but people love, but I can't really, uh, I can't confess this sin. I won't. So, we, we won't put that public. Great. Um, what concept bar or a cocktail lounge do you think and want existing in Hong Kong? I would like to see more, uh, you know, I would like to see good pubs where you have great beers, a good cocktail program, great food, hearty, comforting. And uh, I'm a big sports guy, so bring on the sports bar as well, but of a certain level. I think these are, these are my, you know... 
maybe one day I will open a, a sports bar in Hong Kong. <laughs> maybe. Um, if you could be mixing cocktails in any bar in the world, where would you go? I would go, probably I would, uh, I would be very happy to go back to the Savoy at, at the American bar where my career started and, uh, you know, make a drink for uh, some of the regular guests. Uh, that would be very, uh, that would be very fun, very cool. If you could be drinking in any bar right now, where would you go? I would drink with my dad at home in Rome. Nice. What bar would you want to open up personally in Hong Kong if you had a million dollars? If I have a million dollars, I wouldn't open a bar. <laughs> I would do something else. Maybe I buy a, a, a boat. <laughs> uh, beyond Soho, Wan Chai, obviously here, TST, what is the most underrated area in Hong Kong to drink? I think this is a very good question. And uh, I think you have uh, TST in general, but um, maybe not to drink, but I think Tin Hao and Tai Hang, that area, you have... Uh, a great deal of craft beer bars, little like uh, uh, cocktail or, uh, or wine. Yeah, like, you know, and, and I find them very, uh, very, it's very fascinating because it, it almost doesn't feel like to be in Hong Kong. And, uh, and, it's, very, and it's very cool. It's very uh, community, uh, neighborhoody. Um, I always enjoy my time there. Mm. Um, what is your go-to drink for a, maybe a Netflix night in? Um, for a Netflix night, I think I will have uh, to drink. Um, you know, I don't drink at home. That's actually that's actually a true story. I don't drink at home. I was trying to kind of make up with uh, made up something fun, but I don't drink at home. Uh, so probably it would be like uh, like green tea. Uh, what do you love about being a mixologist? I love the fact that um, we are uh, some sort of like confessional priest you know we we listen we need to prescribe the cure for uh, happy moment sad moment so i feel a little bit like a yeah like a monk you should do a guest shift at dr ferns you know or in, a, the, or in the vatican maybe, maybe. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite junk food to eat at 2 a.m uh, fried chicken fried chicken where chicken nuggets from mcdonald's McDonald's? Oh, yeah. no doubt no, no not a good choice not i know choice. i know shang one mcdonald's uh, no, Queen's Central. Road, the dirtiest, the better. Oh, the LKF one. <laughs> aye, 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 aye. And final question, what are you working on right now or in the future that you'd like to share with us? I'm working on uh, my own uh, biography. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm working on, uh, we are launching a new menu in Argo, which will be uh, mid-November. Very exciting. We're also uh, launching a product, a beer. Can't really can, uh, share any, any further details, but will be a beer which will be available in Hong Kong and in Argo. And also, I'm, uh, it's very fun. It's something new for me. I'm, I'm writing a, a column on uh, uh, South China Morning Post about drinks, about uh, weird uh, food drinks pairing, and kind of unleash uh, all my love for uh, you know, pizza and, um, and weird, weirdness in general. <laughs> For readers of the Beat Asia and for readers of the Post, how often would this be going out? Well, if I, it should be once a month, but uh, let's say that uh, once every two months. We'll, we'll should, keep our eyes out for that. Let's see, my PR team should... Uh, let's hurry up, okay, for the next one, okay? Okay. <laughs> 
Keep your finger on the pulse and tap follow to keep up with the Beat Asia to hear more colorful chats and rich stories. This episode is hosted by me, Ruben Verbes. And special thanks to our lovely guest, Lorenzo Antonori, for joining us today. Our producer for this episode is Marcus Trema, and we are edited by Natsuki Arita. That's all for this episode. See you in the next one.